listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Hello, you are listening <laughs> Welcome to, the- to another episode <laughs> of the Breakfasters podcast for the week the 21st to the 25th of May. Uh, <laughs> highlights this week included, uh, I came up with a potential new uh, invention called the adult swaddle. Yes, which is creepy as it sounds. Yes. And also uh, ended up just had a little chat about the surprise date I went on with Kath. And no. we caught up with Jeff Cadell about his book, The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities and the Remaking of the Civilised World. And then Rowan Thamber came in ahead of his show, 23, it's on at the Butterfly Club. And we also have a bit of a chat in one of our media sessions in the morning about uh, women doctors and why we have to pay more to see them or this proposition that we may have to pay more to see them and also uh, about Spotify's new banning of certain artists. What's the word I'm looking for there? I don't know. To ban, to... I don't know what it is. Take them off the list. Take them off the list. I don't know. I should have thought that through before we started talking. Uh, Enjoy the podcast. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Um, So I am um, going to LA for my holiday. It would be, it would so, be so nice. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so obviously it's a, it's a long trip. Yes, um, very long. It's like 14 hours or so. I'm flying from Sydney and uh, I like to be, uh, I'm, a, as you know, quite the fan of being on a plane. Yes. And it makes no sense to, to you, Jeff. I understand that. Um, but the, I, um, I like to be prepared um, I like to just um, eat the food, watch watch all the movies, and just relax, chill. When out. you say prepared, like, do you ever like order the food beforehand or anything like that? You know, put in a special request. No, no special requests for me. I like the surprises. Yeah. I'm like, oh, what's this? <laughs> yeah, we'll get that meat or fish. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but if you get a vegetarian one, it comes out first. First, that's right. Or kosher. I'm sitting up the front of the plane. I'll be fine. Okay. Yeah, happy with that. And also, I don't mind waiting. And sometimes if you order the special one, you can get that one and then you can also get another one. Can you now? Have you done that before? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Have you really? (laughs) Anyway, back to you. Have you eaten a vegetarian meal and then hidden it and then gone? No, but you just, when they're coming around for the other ones, you've already eaten yours and then you just say, I'll have one of those as well. Oh. That works. Try it. Okay. Um, anyway, but the thing that I, I'm comfortable with everything on, you know, can handle everything, except when it comes time to having to sleep, um, because I don't know what to do with my arms. Oh, yeah. How do you usually your sleep? Arms. Yeah, what do you do with your arms when, you, like when, you, when you're sitting up? Like normally I guess I hold on to something or across my – I like having my arms – like tucked in, tucked in somewhere, yeah. and there's nowhere to tuck it in. So it's like I quite often will end up like holding onto my arms, and then I, when I then I have to let go. It's a lot of effort to hold on all the time. You can't oh, yeah, tuck them in under a blanket, maybe. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess I could. Yeah, maybe that. Could I've never work. thought about what I do with my arms on a plane when I'm sleeping, and I feel like now. That's you, all you're going to be thinking about. Yeah, and about. it's ruined it for me. I won't be able to sleep because I'll be thinking about it's my It's like arms. when you become aware of your tongue in your mouth. And yeah. You can't stop thinking it's about. horrific. Oh. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, because I just, 
you know, I just they flop down to the side, and I don't like yeah. it. What did, I would have thought that like your head is more of a problem when you're trying to sleep no, up. You get, I, you get your neck pillow, and then that's but it. Like you just put your arms by your side in a blanket. That's not enough room. I guess maybe oh, I could okay. sit, on sit on them. So what preparations are you going to take well, for your arm problem? Here's the thing. I think that there should be like a travelling straight jacket and I'll invent, I'll invent that. <laughs> if it does, because I've done some research and I can't find anything online. No. How does a travelling straight jacket uh, differ from a straight jacket? Well, the buckles on the back for start. Okay. No buckles on the back on mine. And it'll be made from like, you know, blanket material. So it'll be like a, like a polar fleece type scenario. Oh, yeah. Just like a jumper with like really long sleeves that you can kind of wrap around and tie it up. Sorry. Imagine you're getting on a plane to travel. You don't wear it the whole time. A long haul journey to America or to Britain. Mm. You just go for the person next to you has bought their own straight jacket. Yeah. Why do you? Why, I don't understand why your arms have to be pulled up like a vampire. I just because that's I I like them to be not heavy down by but my I, side. I don't know that many people sleep like a vampire. No. Do you think there's much market for this? Well, if if it's good enough for me. <laughs> It's good enough for everybody. <laughs> All right. I think we, I reckon you could do a bit well, of a trial. It doesn't have to be like right up, like crossing over your chest. It could just be... Strapped. Yeah. You should make a prototype of this. Yeah. Well, I should get someone to make me a prototype. Just I can't, so... Get the person next to you to wrap some rope around you, maybe. No, that's too uncomfortable. That's why I want like the pole. Of, but I think maybe the best solution would be maybe just... Tuck my hands in under the blanket. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe I could try the street. <laughs> or maybe I just would like. It'd be great if someone could tuck me in. That'd uh, be nice. It, uh, yeah, I feel like this is one of those things. I used to want when I'm driving on a freeway. I used to want to be able to drive up on the back of a truck and get a coffee and then drive off again. Yeah. And I thought that would be a good invention. And I feel like that invention is the equivalent oh. of your straight jacket. You don't really need to drive on the back of a truck. Like a fighter pilot. Yes. Docking for fuel. Yeah. So you don't have to leave and get off and go into the service station and stuff. Also, I thought about this pre there being heaps of coffee shops to stop at on the freeway. Yes, right. Do you know what I mean? So that as you drive along, you, you pass various trucks that you can drive up into. Yeah, yeah. And then you can just get some things and then you drive off so you don't lose any speed. Do you know I watched an episode of Who Dares Wins? Does that happen in it? Yeah. No. Where they, there was a truck driving along and the woman had to drive up the – while the truck was going, she had to drive up the a ramp onto the back of the truck. Oh. oh was it hard to do? Is that yeah, a- failed. Oh. Couldn't do it. Oh, okay. There, go, there goes my idea. It's yeah. driving up. Insanely dangerous Yeah, well. it's really hard. I thought maybe there could be a truck lane and it slows down a bit. And then you drive up the back oh, of the... Oh, okay. Well, this one... Yeah, they were going very fast on this one. Yeah, of course, right. You could do it. This is back in the... She was just too scared. They amped it up too much. Mm. You'd be fine. She didn't know there'd be coffee up on the back of no, the truck. No, she'd known that. She would have been up there like a flash. <laughs> well, I think you've got to persist <laughs> persist with these because you tell people about your ideas mm. and they scoff at them and then you don't do them and then somebody and else... And you see them later like Milo, <laughs> Milo yes. Ice Cream. My girlfriend invented Milo Ice Cream when we were about five... No, uh, she didn't. My best mate, yeah, and then Milo came out with the ice cream. She should have sold it to them. When you say oh. she invented it, did she just say, I would like some Milo ice cream? Yeah. I yeah, grew so, up on that, mate. Yeah, yeah, but like actually as a product that you could go and buy. Oh, okay. Now you can buy it. I oh, invented okay. exercise machines that had video games attached to them. 
Oh, did you? I did. What did you have? That are video games. That's so kind like, of what exists, though. Well, yeah, well, they gym. didn't exist when I invented them. Mm-hmm. Didn't was, they? Well, I said, look how boring it is being on a rowing machine. Yeah. But if you're in some, like, going down a river and there are, like, crocodiles and stuff oh, happening. Oh, and you had to get away from the crocs. Yeah. Someone did point out that what you're talking about is a swaddle. Yeah. Which yes. is actually true. Yes, that's exactly what I want, an adult swaddling <laughs> for the plane. Yes, thank you. And, and then someone suggested you get Kath to make it. She's very busy I actually, quilting. I actually think that if you pitch this as an adult as an adult swaddle mm. rather than a straight jacket, this could work. Yeah, maybe you straight feel, jacket is the wrong word. You feel this many people who I want an adult it, swaddle? I think it would help you with your sleeping disorder. I'm Imagine you got swaddling myself <laughs> before I go to sleep. Yeah, you know, it'd stop you from using. Your, oh my god, it'd stop you from using your phone. Yes, so it, it stops. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's not a swaddle. That's a straight jacket. No, it's a yeah. swaddle. I think this is genius. Jess. Yes. Do you know what swaddling, do you know what... Yeah, like a baby, you wrap it around like a yeah, mummy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I'm not doing Like that. a taco. <laughs> yeah. Right, okay. So, no, you can't, and then you can't look at your phone. What else is good about it? Can't eat, you can't get up to go to the toilet, so you have to make oh. sure you've gone to the toilet well in advance. This is the other... And you this can't is, get up to go to work. <laughs> this is one problem. I don't know how you get out of the swaddle. <laughs> Well, and the question is, how do you get into it? Because you have to make it so you can do it yourself. What about it has a ring that you pull with your mouth, like a little contraption, <laughs> no. and you pull it, and it pulls your arms in when you pull it with your mouth, and then you pull it again, kind of like when you're on a jumping out of a plane. Sure. You pull oh, you it again get, with your teeth, and it flops open. Or we'll get like, Velcro. You could put use your face to fasten the I Velcro. I feel like you'd be leaving your dignity behind when you signed up for this. Yeah, but no one looks good on sleeping on a plane. At least you can be comfortable. Or in an adult swaddle, I don't think. Free Triple R. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Jeff Goodell is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and the author of many books, the most recent of which is entitled The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities and the Remaking of the Civilised World. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. You open this book with a terrifying description of a hypothetical hurricane hitting Miami in 2037. Tell us what this hurricane does. Well, this hurricane is a fictional account of what uh, if if a hurricane hits New York, uh, Miami in the future when the seas are a foot or two higher and the, and what that means for a city like Miami where you get um, you know, a massive storm surge that pushes into Miami in places that there's never been water before. It floods out uh, the nuclear plant that's there. Uh, and it really calls into question the whole you know, idea that we're going to kind of rebuild the city in, in the aftermath. Because I think that that's one of the things that you know, thinking about the future and sea level rise really calls into question is the way that, you know, co- our coastal cities are built today. And by imagining this futuristic scenario in the opening of the book for Miami, it, it's a way of kind of painting the portrait of of what a, a sort of um, waterlogged or a major urban city really looks like and how we would go about rebuilding. So where are we at with the scientific knowledge on sea rise? What is the consensus on the sea levels we'll see in, say, 2100? Well, the first thing that's really important to get is that, um, you know, my book is called The Water Will Come. It's And, and it, it's titled that because 
sea level rise is built into uh, where we are today. The amount of warming that we have in the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels means that no matter how much we cut fossil fuels, no matter how much, if we you know all go to solar power and stop burning coal tomorrow, we're still going to have significant sea level rise built in. How much by 2100, you know, the, the consensus, uh, it's, Varies the IPCC, the kind of United Nations of climate science, has a high end of three feet, but no scientists really think that that's um, up to date anymore. That was about a decade old. And the consensus now for the high end is about seven to eight feet, so about over two meters uh, by 2100. Could be, could be more, could be less, but that's the sort of high end consensus right now. Because people might be listening to that and thinking, okay, well, you know, seven feet, that's maybe not that much, I can swim that far or whatever, but you discuss <laughs> what the consequences are for cities around the world. So let's begin with Miami because that's the opening chapter and in some ways it's one of the more shocking stories, partly because Miami seems to have been largely constructed by hustlers as part of a <laughs> shonky land grab. On sand. <laughs> that's what makes Miami so charming. <laughs> so what does this kind of sea level mean for Miami today? It means that Miami as we as we know it today, the Miami that we see today, basically will not exist. I mean, there's no scenario in which the Miami as we know it today can exist in a world where there's six or seven or two meters higher, higher sea levels. Um, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that Miami will be completely gone, but it means that um, it will have to be completely rebuilt and reimagined. And what the consequences of that are, are, are enormous, of course, the economic consequences. What that will or won't look like, um, you know, it's impossible to say. But, you know, Miami's the, the sort of textbook example of a coastal city that was not built with the notion that the, that the border between, you know, land and sea was going to change, you know, that was built with this idea that here's the water and here's the land and this little barrier of sand that we're building Miami Beach on is always going to be there. And, and no one... It, it didn't occur to anyone that those boundaries might change. And by burning a lot of fossil fuels and, and forcing our climate system, warming everything up, we're changing those boundaries. And it's going to hit every coastal city in the world. Um, some will be in better shape than others. Um, but it's not like, you know, it's, it's going to be fine until there's sharks swimming through the lobby of the Hilton Hotel in Miami <laughs> Beach, right? I mean, it's a problem with beach erosion already. Um, it's a problem with roads flooding out already. Uh, it's a big problem already with declining real estate values. As people begin to understand that, oh, wow, in a decade or two, this flooding that we're already having now is going to get a lot worse. And so the value of homes uh, are already beginning to decline and will decline more. When I look at Miami Beach now, I see... You know, not just a beach with a lot of like, you know, fancy hotels with built by famous architects, but I see a kind of landscape of stranded assets where, you know, the value of the risks and the value of um, the future of these places is not priced into it now. And the economic consequences of that are huge. Generally, though, economic consequences are the kind of things that make governments take action. Finally, what, if anything, are Miami doing at the moment to counteract what's going on? Well, you know, I mean, they're they're holding a lot of conferences and having a lot of meetings and talking a, a lot about things. But when you have a governor, uh, we have a governor in Florida who won't say the words climate change. Uh, we have a president who um, believes that climate change is a hoax perpetuated by the Chinese. Um, when you have that kind of political structure uh, happening in America, it's very difficult to take any real action because it, it's really a 
something that needs to be done, you know, beyond just sort of local citizens in a neighborhood rallying for something. This needs to be a kind of holistic rethinking of zoning, of development, um, money, lots of money put into changing drainage, storm sewers, all kinds of things. And that's just simply not happening. We hear a lot about Trump and his response to climate change. Yet you talk about the 2015 Paris climate talks and kind of how hopeful they were. How is the rest of the world responding to having a president that's now denying climate change? Well, I mean, you know, President Trump is a joke uh, to most Americans. um, uh, And more broadly, I think, uh, a joke to the rest of the world, of course. Um, a tragic joke. And I think that um, on within climate, you know, what's happened is that now that the U.S. has sort of bowed out of this, some of the um, momentum behind what happened in Paris has slowed because for President Obama really was a kind of driving force to to, to bring this whole thing together. I don't think the deal is completely unraveled and I don't think it's completely hopeless. And I think that a lot of people understand that, you know, the U.S. is still in the game and, you know, in the sense that we have a lot of cities and states who are taking dramatic action and that President Trump won't be president forever. Uh, And obviously this is a global problem that, that, you know, um, the Chinese, for example, recognize is really um, important and a, a big opportunity for them with, you know, clean energy, solar power and all that kind of thing, but also a big risk to them for the same reasons that it's a risk to everybody else of flooding cities and things. And that the need for collective action is quite obvious to everybody. Um, but I do think that Trump has, you know, deflated the Paris balloon a little bit. Mm. I mean, it's easy for Australians, I think, to hear the stories about Miami and think, okay, Miami's screwed. That's Americans. But for me, though, the, the, the chapter that was the most disturbing, one of the more disturbing, was your discussion of Venice, partly because it's such a beautiful place, but partly because it's a European city, it's built on water, and you sort of feel that if there's a place that would be able to adapt to climate change, Venice would be it. But you kind of describe it as, well, basically as ill-prepared as Miami, or perhaps not as ill-prepared as Miami, but certainly struggling. Yeah, I mean, Venice is, going to Venice was a a kind of eye-opening thing for me in the book. I mean, everyone, most people know, I think that Venice has been subsiding, sort of sinking for for a long time. Um, But, you know, going to Venice for for me was, uh, the first thing I thought was like, how beautiful this city is on the water. And it gives you, and I... The, the first thing I thought was like, we should have built all of our cities on the water. This is a wonderful thing. You know, it's great to have a water city. So in one way, it's a vision of a way that a city can work in a watery world, right? But the problem with Venice is that um, uh, it, it is not only is it subsiding, but the water is is rising around it. And it's very difficult to protect that city. They're trying to build barriers um, around the city, which are very expensive and not really going to work very well. I think eventually what's going to happen is that uh, that Venice is going to be sort of walled off from the sea completely and essentially be a city within a lake instead of a city within, within the ocean, within the sea. That will eventually happen. Uh, it was really interesting, though. I had a conversation with the head engineer of Venice, and he said, you know, in the 14th century, if this were happening, they, we would have just, like, 
knocked down these buildings and built on top of them. That's what they did for many centuries. If you, whenever they build a structure in, in Venice, there's like 12 layers of foundations below. But because it's all such a historic place now, there's no room. They can't do that. They can't knock anything down. They can't raise things. It's sort of frozen in amber. And that's what, why it's in so much, so much trouble right now. What do you see as a relationship between trying to stop climate change and trying to prepare for its effects in the way that you describe throughout the book? I mean, is there a danger that if we concentrate too much on mitigation, we essentially move to a state where we just accept that these things are going to happen and there's nothing that we can do about it? Do you see a tension between those two things? Yeah, there is a tension. And I think that, you know, the big danger, I think, is that we focus too much on mitigation, on trying to cut emissions. And of course, for one thing, it's not really happening. Uh, we're not cutting emissions in any serious way. But even though, but that's where a lot of the tension is. And there's a lot of fear that if we start talking about adaptation, if we start talking about, you know, uh, building cities that are better adapted to rising waters, begin thinking about retreat, all the kinds of things that you know we need to do to prepare for living in a rapidly warming world, that's going to take away from the energy of uh, or the political you know will to cut emissions but i think you know as a, a friend of mine said to me in in sydney talking about a theater production as it once it once the curtain raises you're in the river and we're in the river with climate change it's going to come at us it's you know we're going to have significant changes in our world in the very near future no matter what we do on emissions and one of the things i'm trying to talk about in this book is the necessity of beginning to think smartly about adapting and about changing how and where we live to prepare for these changes. Are you able to talk a little bit about what changes a country like Australia might experience being fairly close to Antarctica? Uh, maybe a city even like Melbourne, who's on the coast-ish, not as, not as coast-ish as Miami? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Australia obviously is a coastal country. Yeah. You know, I think 85% of the population here lives on the coast. You know, the individual, the cities, um, some cities will be in better shape than others. You know, Melbourne obviously has the advantage of some high ground uh, to retreat to. But coastal, you know, the changing of the sea levels is going to have a huge, huge impact in Australia in, in many places. Um, simple things from, you know, changing of the uh, beaches, you know, as sand gets washed away and, and pushed to other places. I took a road trip up the Gold Coast last year and saw many, many houses that were dealing with, you know, uh, the ground underneath the houses eroding away, uh, to people frantically trying to build seawalls and things. I walked on uh, Manly Beach in Sydney with uh, a very noted uh, climate scientist. And, um, you know, he sort of just swept his hand across the beach as we were walking and said, you know, with one meter of sea level rise, this is all gone. Yeah. You know, and so you think about what is mean to Australia? What does it mean to Sydney to have a place, an iconic place like Manly Beach, you know, no longer there? Um, the, the implications of this are, are, are enormous. And also, frankly, for Australia, the question of refugees, yeah. you know, um, it's obviously immigration is a huge issue here. And you're surrounded by low-lying islands and there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be seeking higher ground from those islands in the very very near future and a lot of them are going to want to come here and how are you going to handle that 
The book is The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities and the Remaking of the Civilised World. You could catch Jeff Goodell's Speaking of the Wheel Centre tonight, although I think it is sold out. Perhaps you could call up and see if they've got any spare tickets. Thank you so much, Jeff Goodell, for speaking to us. Thanks for having me. Three. Triple. Uh, hey, also, um, I bought us. I just bought us a lot of ticket. What? What for us? Yeah, are we all in? Ten, ten. You got to give me ten bucks each. Okay, oh, I owe you a hundred anyway. Yeah. <laughs> sure, I'll it's a bad week well. last week. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. So just, uh, just so you. How all much know. are we going to win? Thirty million. So okay. we just, we're just putting it uh, so officially it's ten mi- now 10 each. out. That we all have bought this together. Yeah. Yeah. No backpedaling after we give you the cash. Yeah. I'm announcing it now. We'll all split it through. 10 ways. million. That, that, 10 million. That will come in handy. Yeah. Uh, so oh, last night. So handy. <laughs> anyway. I know, I'm not even going to do the rest <laughs> of the show. Now we can just retire. <laughs> so once you're in, you're like, oh, plan it all out. But imagine if we did win. I wouldn't want to tell anyone that I'd won, and the three of us would have to keep it a secret on air. But we'd all be yeah. living these crazy lives, <laughs> flying to London for the weekend. You guys wouldn't do that. You couldn't handle it. Or Jeff would. I would. Yeah. Oh, no, I'd be out of here. I'd be first class all the way. I think I already am out of oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, <laughs> That's money in the bank. In anticipation. $10 million dollars each. Anyway, I, last night I uh, went to trivia. At the Well, that was my plan anyway. I thought, Tuesday night, get out of the house. I don't have any gigs on for the rest of the week. I'm like, oh, freeze a bird. Just go out, get amongst it. <clears throat> and I thought, I live, live, in, live in Collingwood in the, in the heart of it all. There'll be something on. I thought, oh, look at that. There's trivia down at the Rochi. I like that pub. I'll go down there. And uh, didn't book. Big, big mistake. Oh. I always find it, you know, when I came to your comedy night, I came and saw you do like five minutes of comedy at the Rochi mm. a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't believe that there was a packed out room midweek. I just, it's not something that I think that people do go out and commit yeah. to events. But it also, but you forget when you were in your early 20s. Yeah. And you didn't true. have to get up the next day and you go, yeah. well, there's nothing on. Maybe you, you didn't work on breakfast people, radio. Yeah. People love trivia too. Did you just turn up by yourself or? Yeah, to begin with, Matt, Kath, Kath met me there, and ah. like I didn't book because I wasn't sure if another friend was coming. It's like, oh well, if there's only going to be two of us, yeah, we'll be fine. Like we'll just sit at the bar or something, uh, and every single seat was taken. I was at the bar, and like, can I sit here? And she's like, actually, all those seats are taken for. Wow, popular, yeah, Lots very of trivia. popular, yeah. So, uh, but in in like going in, I thought. I wonder if Kath and I will have a fight. Like if we, if oh. it's only two of us playing trivia, we can both get quite oh, competitive. I, see what you mean. I yes. would say you definitely would, given Kath's reaction to Trivial Pursuit. Yes, <laughs> yes. So I was, there was a little bit of, oh, I wonder if we'll be okay. I'm like, it'll be fine, uh, and we'll just go there and have dinner, and it'll be lovely. Um, anyway, no, no, no room at the inn, essentially. And there were, but they have like a dining bit up the back. Um, so Kath's like, oh, how about we, we can go sit up the back and just have dinner and go home. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And then we go up the back and we sit down. And then all of a sudden there's a waiter there and he goes, oh, can I, uh, would you like some water, tap water or still? And I'm like, what is happening? What is happening? <laughs> what? Yeah, there's like a dining section of the Rochi. With and they serve um, like it's an Indian menu, like South Indian, and it is 
amazing. Oh, what? oh that's really cool. Yeah. Oh, you, just, a, you had no idea. Like a fancy dining. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like really fancy did they put and the, lovely. Did they put your bib, what do you call the thing that you... No, so they yeah, on your <laughs> on your lap. They give you a bib. <laughs> give you as they do in fancy yeah. restaurants. Here's your bib. <laughs> not not to that extent. It okay. still had you know a waiter. We just had a waiter. Yeah, that is excellent. In a, in a pub. pub, and it was the food was amazing. Pubs should bring that back. Pub I waiters. I love it. I love it so much. And so it just turned into this night of we just had a. Had a really nice date, essentially. Aww. Just had, sat there and, you know, had nice conversations and surprise and date. Yeah. And you couldn't hear great. any of the trivia. Couldn't hear it, didn't, didn't care. care. Didn't worry about it. It was just a bonus of a fancy night out. Was the food delicious? Amazing. Because I always so have this delicious. rule about eating curries at pubs. I always think, unless you know that that's their specialty, I generally don't oh, order yes. it off a pub menu. It can menu. just be the older meat with a bit of curry powder. Yeah. yeah. This no, is obviously a proper, It's not. Real I, deal. I wouldn't even class it as a pub meal at all. It's like a restaurant that just happens to be in a pub. Oh, and apparently huh. they've just relaunched it like four weeks ago yeah. and because I, I said, I just came here for the $10 burgers, but <laughs> this is heaps better. Knocking it up a notch. Yeah. And then we went, well, let's live it up more. And we went and got a fancy bottle of wine as well and went home and had a n- nice glass of wine. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Lived the life. Got to say, it always does add something when it when these things happen by surprise, though. Yes. It? It's like you go there just thinking, well, you went there thinking you were going to have a fight. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Was it? Turn around for the books, was it? I think it's I think it's really good though. It's also nice that you just were able to roll with the punches with Kath. Yeah. You know? I yeah. think a lot of other people would go, Oh that's up that's up to upset my really specific plans. I'll just go home and that's that. I'll just go home and sulk. Yeah. yeah. No, but we yeah, we go with the flow. That's why we're cool. <laughs> Three triple R. You're tuned to Triple R. This show is the Breakfasters. It's time to talk about things we found in the media. We were saying before that we've got a lottery ticket. We're going to become super rich later in the day. Oh, about five you o'clock. You need to lay those dreams to rest. <laughs> when we win all the money, do we tell people? Well, they might want to. I reckon, I reckon the two of you might be struggling to keep it to yourselves. <laughs> It's just not going to turn up tomorrow. We've already announced it. Anyway, that's by way of introducing this story, which is about the shipwreck of the Spanish galleon that's been found off the coast of Colombia. Guess how much they reckon the treasure of this ship is worth. Is there actually treasure in ships? I thought that was No, a, no it's like a... What? It's like, like artefacts and stuff, you know. No, like gold. Oh, there is gold. Treasure <laughs> chest. This is like no. $17 billion. Get what? the F out. It's pretty cool. So it was actually found in 2016. I kind of have a vague feeling we might have talked about it when it was actually Can found. Can I ask a weird question about this? Sorry, put a pin on what you're sure. going to say. Um, will that make a difference to the economy? Like there's an extra seven. Billion dollars in the in the world. That seems like a lot. Yes, you wonder what. Well, I think it's mostly gold, and you do wonder what effect it'll have on the gold price. Although there does seem to be like a a big legal stoush pending as to who is going to get it. And also, did they know it was there the whole time? They did know it was there, and so it was a big treasure hunt to go and find it. And they found it with a sort of underwater submarine thingy. Puts me out of the. Race, <laughs> trying to find that. Yeah, <laughs> around. Around. Um, and, and so, who found it? 
an American. I'm going to say an American search. Yeah, Massachusetts-based search team. They'd previously found the wreckage of a plane. Off search the, team is this what they do? Yeah, them? yeah. Oh. No, they're treasure. They're like serious, like treasure hunters. Oh. So they knew that it had been a battle with a British um, fleet in the 17th century, 18th, early 18th, <laughs> early 18th, early 18th century. That's having a stroke. <laughs> um, and it exploded. So the British were trying to capture it and because they knew it was laden with all this, this treasure, but the cannonballs hit the magazine or whatever and it exploded and sank. And so people knew that it was kind of, they knew that it was there and nobody had found it, but nobody knew exactly where it was. They found it in 2016. What they've done now is they've released some of the footage that the the robot thing has taken so you can see like wow. the cannons <gasps> lying on the bottom of the sea and like what looks like I suppose they're have they sold the treasure no I was kind of waiting for like big chests yeah um, no and to be honest there is another article which puts the treasure at 1 billion rather than 17 billion right. which seems to be like a fairly major dis- discrepancy I reckon, I reckon once you get up in the billions it doesn't really matter <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> I'd like to think 1, 17 what's it matter I, I hope that Nicolas Cage was the one that led that expedition. <laughs> <laughs> so, did they say anything about what? So, did sh- ships routinely carry around tres- chests of treasure? So, the the, Span- the Spanish were financing their war with um, gold and um, precious stones looted from the Americas. So, they bring it. It was a treasure ship, like they were bringing it back to. Wow. So the British knew that it was there and was trying to ca- were trying to cap to trying to cut off these supplies of treasure coming to Europe. So it kind of wasn't an accident, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so imagine being the British commander and you think, yes, I'm just about to capture this ship. I get billions of dollars, and then oh. that would be, just be a bit like if we were going to win the lottery and then we didn't. Yeah, that's going to happen <laughs> exactly like that. Um, I want to talk about um, there's a story in in the Age today about there's a probe for Melbourne a GP clinic just charging more to see female doctors. Yeah, so there's a sign up in the doctor saying female GP standard consultation eighty two extended one hundred seventeen male seventy five. Extended 110. Uh, now, I know about this story because a friend of mine um, uh, posted this on, on Facebook yesterday. She said, um, my current doctors have introduced a female-male doctor fee, um, $7 more. Uh, and when she asked at the reception about it, the receptionist quoted, she said, oh, yeah, because women's issues take longer. Oh, my gosh. Mm. I thought it was. I thought what I'd read was that they were saying that female. female doctors spend more time in general with their patients. That's what I'd read. Yeah, because women's issues take longer. Essentially, is what because more women see women doctors, so more time is taken up. Yeah, I, I know that you pay for extended. So if I'm going to see, I, I see it. Exactly, my Which, lo- my local doctor. Yeah, if I if I pay for a a long session, that's because I'm going to get something some done or some complicated issue. Yeah, it should, it, it should be based on time. And yeah, not time, not gender. gender. Oh, I thought yeah. when I I saw that going around on social media, I assumed that they meant that they were charging female patients confused, more. Yeah, it confused me to begin with as well. But it's and apparently, um, I, I I'd read that uh, it was the doctors that actually had asked for to get more money. Because they I spend think longer. It's, yeah. And I think it's... Cause it, 
kind of brings up the question of how it's charged anyway. I think the, there's, I think it's maybe 10-minute blocks to begin, 10 or 15 minutes, and I think there's some sort of gap or something as far as I can work out, and I think that whole system needs to change. So, And also I, I think, you know, and you look at it more broadly, then, of course, women, we do, we listen more. So whereas, um, you know, and that's the way society is, you know, with women have been trained to sit and listen and, and not interrogate, essentially. So mm. do the doctors, this is going to sound like a stupid question, but do the doctors get paid? Does their salary come from the number of hours they spend with patients? You know what I mean? Or are they on a salary? Are they on a fixed salary or is it dependent? Are their earnings dependent on... I, I reckon, I, I can't answer this, maybe a doctor could tell us, but I think it would have to be dependent on patients that are coming through because otherwise that all bog bill, right? So... So because they always say, like, I need to earn a certain amount of money. That's why I can't bulk bill, mm, right? So that would yeah. be the rationale for it. Would the female doctors be saying, I'm spending longer, so I'm seeing fewer patients, so I'm earning less money. Yes. So I... Yeah. But also... It does if, seem a bit of a cockamamie system, doesn't it? It does. And I, I think, you know, in the GP's defence, I think it's the... The good thing is that they've brought up this problem yeah. and it's just a it's bad discussed. way of going about fixing it. Yeah. And hopefully, um, you know, things things like that can, can change. Mm, I already feel kind of resentful when I know that I have to go for, just because there's certain medical things women have to do, regular like pap smears and things, and I always feel a little yes. bit resentful because I have to book, you yeah. know, I mean, it's once every two years or something. But like, you know, you, you're like, oh, I have to book a long session for this and I have to pay more, mm. you know, and yeah, it's just, it, yeah, it's one of those things, I suppose. Yeah. Just one of many, many things that we have to pay more for because we are women. <laughs> Someone's just tweeted to say that doctors get paid per patient, so I don't know who that person is or if they're a doctor, but thank you <laughs> for that information. We'll believe it sure. as it comes in. <laughs> and when the next person says they don't, we'll believe that as well. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, I was going to just touch really quickly on, uh, I don't know if you've read the story that's in The Guardian today about Victorian Labor uh, going to debate the plan to move Australia Day to May 9 as part of their annual conference that they have. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's not just that. There's a few other things that are being debated as well, but that's the one that is quite, you know, the one that they've chosen to highlight in the media. Uh, they're going to be discussing this along with a few other things, uh, uh, also some stuff around refugees and whether we should stop offshore detention or at least rehouse the people that are in offshore detention at the moment in Australia, which is kind of, I guess, a push from the left within Labor. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see see how this plays out. I think a lot of this has to do with, um, what was her name, who just won? Kearney? Kearney. Yeah, yeah, who just won the seat that was, and kind of on her, probably half of her reason for winning was because she had that kind of slightly more yeah. humane approach to refugees and also was vocal about Adani as well. Do you think this, I mean, Andrew sits on the left of Labor anyway in the state. What do you think that will be the outcome of this? Do you think you could see them... Does the state oh. have much say in? Sorry, does the state government have? Well, this is labour. This is the state. This is labour. Victorian labour. Who's going to be debating this? So, could you see them kind of adopting these policies or this line? It will be interesting to see. And I mean, obviously, I I think it's a really good thing that the debate is happening and that mm. the Labor Party is being forced to, to 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 discuss these things. I would have thought that Shorten will crush it like a bug, but well, at least we'll try to. At these state labour conferences, is that? Do they just shorten? Is shorten involved in them? How do they work? No. So the I mean the, the Labor Party has 
a quite, on paper, at least a reasonably democratic structure in which the branches and the conference have quite a lot of influence. In practice, however, the MPs um, exercise a huge amount of control. So in terms of federal labour and, you know, refugee um, policy is obviously a federal issue. At the end of the day, it's the caucus that has a massive influence and the decisions of the party are off. There's often quite a gulf between what the stated policy of the party is and the positions being articulated by the caucus. Because in, in, in that context, like if Shorten got rolled on these things, it would be seen as a major kind of political blow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean? So is this then more about establishing a brand leading into the state election, do you think, rather than actually being able to do anything that's effective? I, I, I mean, I, I think that's... Certain people within the Labor Party are really worried about these issues and particularly I mean, if you were a Labor Party MP and you had a state in, in a city, um, Melbourne or in a city, Sydney, you know that you're going to be hammered over refugees yeah, and, you know, climate change and, yes, and um, mm. Invasion Day. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's percolating into the Labor Party. How this will play out, I don't know. I mean, in some way, Victorian Labor seems to have been like have quite tabloid sort of instincts in many ways, particularly over things like law and order. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah totally. Like, like as soon as mandatory detention. Yeah. So oh, who knows? Be interesting to watch. You're in Chabala. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Tune to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. 23 is a musical comedy show on at the Butterfly Club until the 26th of May. Rowan Thamba is the man behind it. He's joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure, mate. 23 is a somewhat cryptic title. How would you describe the show? Uh, it's pretty much about me being 23. Uh, so cryptic, cryptic Jeff. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's a real doozy <laughs> or a riddle. The whole time the audience is like, man, when is he going to get to this 23 business? Uh, you've been doing it since uh, 2017 all over the place. How has it evolved yeah. over that time? Well, you see, Jeff, I was 22. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep that going for years. And uh, now I'm 23. <laughs> so it used to be called 22 uh, and I did it. At just the Sydney Fringe and the Melbourne Fringe, just trying to working stuff out. And then, um, yeah, then uh, did it up in Sydney at the Comedy Festival this year and then thought, hey, why not come down to Melbourne and give it one more go? Are you based in, in Melbourne now? No, I'm based in uh, Sydney. Oh, there you go. I, thought, I always thought you were in Melbourne because we first met in at Melbourne the fringe, at yeah. Melbourne Fringe when mm. I was hosting at Federation Square in one of the greatest <laughs> gigs of all time. I remember you talking about that now. Mm. <laughs> well, it was a it was a weird gig. It was one. It's just outside gigs are, are troublesome at any time for yeah. for a comedian. And having, like, there was something like 30 acts on or something and they were told to get there 15 minutes before their set. That's, things don't go, always go according to plan. So I don't know how many times you ended up getting up. Yeah, like, I think twice, yeah. almost a third. Because <laughs> it was like, no one's here, Rowan's still here. Yeah. <laughs> and music, music uh, holds the attention of an outside crowd a little bit more than... Maybe stand up does when people are just like walking past. Yeah, all I've got is my words. <laughs> you, but you can bang out a decent tune on the piano. Yeah. Oh, so so tell us about being a. I feel like musical comedy divides opinions. Why did you choose to 
ha- have a keyboard and not just get up there and uh, yell at people. It's all I've got. <laughs> it's all. No, uh, no, I, I just I was always like I grew up watching. Like Tim Minchin was the first comedian I ever saw. Yeah, right. Well, that would um, explain it then. And I went, oh, you can do this. You can because I I, I I played like classical piano like from my, when I was a kid, and so I just like I was like, oh, what I can do music and do comedy like that has never crossed my mind and so i don't know i just kind of thought that it's something that i'm kind of good at and so why not throw it in and how did your parents feel about you using your classical training to become a comedian (laughs) evil rather than good well it was a steady decline as soon as i hit like 11 i was like Oh, I hate classical. I just want to do jazz, mum and dad. And then, <laughs> and then I was like, Oh no, I just want to do comedy, mum and dad. And they were like, Oh man, what is happening? Well, this is backfired on us. We tried to make him a well-rounded kid, and now he's just oh, now he's going to the going to the creative well, arts. I, yeah. I want to follow that up too because I saw a Daily tele- Telegraph profile of you that was headlined "Finance Student by Day, <laughs> Funny Man by Night." You're You've still done your f- research. Yeah. <laughs> You're still a funny man by night. Are you still a finance student? Uh, or did that no, go by I'm the way, a finance so. graduate now. Uh, I graduate. Yeah, I did a double degree in finance and journalism, uh, and I graduated that at the end of 2016. Uh, and, and have you done anything with it since? Uh, I worked for Channel Nine for a bit. Well, I was go. a news social media producer, oh. uh, oh. and then I went into management consulting for a little bit. Well, tell us how did when did you make <laughs> the move into comedy? Um, well, I've kind of been doing it for the last maybe... I did, like, Class Clowns when I was in high school. Okay. Like, way back when. Yeah. Um, and then I, like, did the HSC and then went to uni and did that uni thing. And at the end of uni, I kind of wanted to take comedy a little bit more seriously. So probably for the last, like, 18 months, two years, I've been kind of doing it more regularly. And you got selected to be in the Comedy Zone this year, the Comedy Festival. Yeah, Tell us about that. I was... Super fun. So for those of people who don't know, it's like this showcase show that the Comedy Festival puts on and they pick five acts from around Australia. Um, We had people from Queensland, we had people from New South Wales and we had people from Victoria because that's... The best of the emerging artists in Australia, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, So, yeah, I had a really good time. I mean, I've never done 22 shows back to back. Uh, It was... And and the people were so great. Like I was with Blake Freeman and Zach Dyer, Bonnie Tangy and Jack Romans, and they were super funny people. And I love them lots. They're really cool. Cool. Uh, I found another quote from you, which um, I thought was really kind of. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got they saw this would happen. Said, I think everything should be joked about. There are just some topics that require more thought than others, but that's work for the comic, not the audience. I thought it was a good way of responding to that PC is killing comedy argument that's you know that's flared up again this year. You want to talk us through this? Wow. Uh, <laughs> oh, he really does. I don't remember when I said that, but that sounds real good. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Really good. Wow, it sounds like it's a quote out of my Inside the Actors Studio with James Lipton. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's special. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I think it speaks to yourself. Like, I think, I, I don't think there are things that, um, yeah, shouldn't be joked about, but there, if you are going to do it, you should do it with a level of care that that it kind of requires. I don't know. There you go. Let's <laughs> let's talk about privilege because you talk, you talk a lot about uh, not a lot, but a bit about privilege in mm-hmm. your in your show. How much privilege does a brown man have? 
Um, uh, a bit now. <laughs> you are brown. I am brown. Sorry, yes. For people at home, Jesus I is just throwing it out there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go race by race. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I am Sri Lankan. Um, I don't know. I think it's a privilege to be Sri Lankan. Uh, but I think, um, I don't, uh, I mean, like I talk about privilege in the respect that I grew up in a quite, um, well-off family. Like my, my dad is a doctor. Um, I grew up in Newcastle and, um, yeah, you know, like there are people that have it way worse than me, but I, 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 I started really well. Like, I learned how to drive on an Audi. Like, that's, like, the level of privilege that I have, like, you know. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. But, like, I, like, I also talk about the stuff that's hard, like, you know, a bit of racism and that kind of stuff mm. um, in the show. Uh, like, you know, the fact that when we were kids, we called that um, tan-coloured pencil the skin-coloured pencil. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Like that, like that happened. <laughs> uh, that was something that we did, and like, yeah, I kind of just joke about stuff like that. I don't know. What's your dad making your comedy career now? Oh, see, this is the thing. People always ask me, like, are your parents, are your parents disappointed? Um, no one ever asked. <laughs> no one quite ever the asked implication. me. No one ever asked me. Uh, are you? How do your parents disappoint you? It's uh, <laughs> never, never a question for me. Uh, Rowan, tell us, how did your parents disappoint you? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, they're just... They're not in Melbourne, go they're for not, it. Yeah, they're not here. Uh, <laughs> no, um, they, they're they really supportive um, and things are going okay now. So I feel like I feel like the more I convince them, the more I convince myself do, as do well. Do they understand exactly? Because my parents kind of for mm. many years struggled to comprehend comedy and how I would make a living from it and yeah. what exactly... what. It was that I did. Do they have a, a comprehension of what you do? I think so. I think they they get it. Um, I think the the best thing about having them in the show is when they're sitting there, they're just watching everyone else. Like yeah. they're just uh, they're yeah. just like completely gobsmacked that everyone around is like you know, hopefully laughing, um, and like they're just like how how is he doing this? Like why is he like <laughs> like they're just but they're just kind of like oh this is incredible. Yeah, you know, oh, it's so cool. Um, yeah. The show's called 23. It's on at the Butterfly Club until 26 of May, so you've got a few days. Better jump online, grab yourself a ticket. We've been talking to Rowan Thamba. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you guys so much for having me. Appreciate it. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.